I came in, you know, there were concerns because I was so young, but I guess they heard me play and asked me to be in the band. And within a couple of years, I was doing the first record. And I was in 11th grade at the time. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with the Brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Alex Skolnick in an interview that manages to shred more expectations than it does batshit crazy riffage. In this episode, we'll learn about the evolution of the types of guitars Alex has played throughout his entire life, the exciting road to becoming Testament's lead guitar player, and the epiphany he experienced in the late 1980s watching a Miles Davis gig, plus the inevitable effect it had on his career. Coming up, we've got Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for premium membership benefits that'll make you ask yourself, how is it even humanly conceivable that this is all the work of one man and one man alone, just visit patreon.com slash discograffiti. We've got a hundred episodes available exclusively on Patreon, and that number, as well as the discograffiti inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. And away we go then. As lead guitarist and songwriter for Testament, tonight's guest was at the forefront of the second wave of thrash metal in the late 80s. In a 2021 Revolver Magazine fan poll, his band was voted best non-Big Four thrash act. More on that later. The shadow of his influence has fallen hard and heavy over the years, certainly unmistakable in the music of Pantera, Sepultura, White Zombie, Korn, Lamb of God, and so many others. Guitar World Magazine named him one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and they know their shit because it says it right there in the title. Lads and ladies, snatch up your top secret documents and start shredding because an arpeggio flurry is about to rain down on your shriveled excuse for a collective soul. It's Alex Skolnick. What an intro. I don't even know if I can follow that. Well, let's just end it here then. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm coming at your material and you from an angle that may be different than most, because mm-hmm. in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not a huge metal guy. I mean, I love Black Sabbath. I love Budgie. I love the great Seminoles, but I didn't come up listening to Testament. Nothing wrong with that. No judgment. I've listened in the last couple weeks to everything you've ever done that I could find. And you certainly come at music from a wide variety of angles. You know, I am wildly enthralled to your jazz stuff and super curious as an outsider looking in kind of thing at the 
at the thrash stuff. I'm curious what type of fan, if any, you're more excited about encountering these days based on where your preferences lie. Well, I enjoy talking to folks that are not as familiar with the music I've done in the past. Because I think when you have this familiarity and this history with the music I've done, then you tend to be you know, an insider. You can lose some objectivity. Where yeah. if it's fresh, you know, then it's exciting to talk to somebody. I mean, at one time the music was new, even the the music that came out decades ago. You know, it had this freshness, and I enjoyed it being fresh. But again, yeah, after at a certain point, it starts to lose its objectivity. The listener can lose objectivity. I mean, I'm the same way with music I've heard for a long time. Every time I put it on, I know what the next part is going to be. Yeah, but yeah, I get more excited about talking to people who are discovering it, especially who were discovering my more recent music, which I didn't have back in those early days. And the super interesting thing to me about this is that you and I spoke trying to figure out if there was maybe a way to allow you to fit the format. In other words, to talk about somebody's discography from beginning to end. And you're not really a full discography kind of guy by your own admission, right? True. Yeah, which is interesting. I guess that makes me a bit of an outlier. I've never had a full discography of any one band. I've always, you know, had a few albums. I had a few Kiss albums. I had, well, Van, you know, this is an exception, but Van Halen 1.0, I had every record. Okay, good. I was terrified to hear you say that you <laughs> that you prefer Hagar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I can't say I have every Van Halen record because I stopped buying them. <laughs> yeah. When Sammy came in, all respect to Sammy. So I'll admit some of the music with him has grown on me a little bit. Uh, and I'm not judging it uh, as much versus the original Van Halen stuff. I'm trying to judge it on its own and pretend, you know, I'm hearing it for the first time. Some of it is really well played. I was hearing yeah. right now for the first time in a while and actually learning the piano part, which I think is really cool. And then, you know, I realized, okay, this, you know, there is something to this song. That's an example. So I had every Van Halen record with David Lee Roth. I had every Beatles record. I did not have every Pink Floyd record. You know, I had The Wall. I had Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, I had more music in my collection than the average person. Yeah. Because I knew I was going to be a musician or at least something having to do with music. Whereas, yeah, a lot of uh, friends of mine who liked music but weren't heading down a musical path, yeah, they didn't necessarily have every album. But then there yeah. were fans who, who did have every Rush record, every Pink Floyd record, and so forth. For me, yeah, it was Kiss 1.0, every Van Halen 1.0 record. The Beatles never had a 2.0, you know? <laughs> but that's it. Unless you count facial hair beetles as 2.0. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, to me, it's all the same. The reason why I bring that up as, you know, this amazing thing is because when somebody's on the show and they have what I consider a considered discography, in other words, it seems like they are very knowledgeable about rock history or substitute the genre of your choice because mm -hmm. it takes these hairpin turns that from a bird's eye view are just amazing to look at. There's any number of bands that have that, the Beatles, the Birds, where they're changing with every record. And, right. you know, after 92, you just launch it off into the stratosphere. The typical discography fan is not necessarily a thrash metal enthusiast, but mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing, after this show, they will be, because your type of discography is exactly in line with the kinds of musicians that this entire listener base gravitates towards. Not afraid of nice. change, diving into the unknown, and the work itself is the reward. I mean, your love, your depthless love 
for the protean nature of music and not sticking in one lane is palpable throughout the entirety of your career. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's a great compliment. And uh, I was definitely an oddball in uh, my circles, especially the first wave of being in Testament, the first few albums. Everybody around that scene, you know, was listening to metal full time. It was all about just the fastest metal. And you really didn't get outside that genre. Now, it's different now. I, I know plenty of musicians that play metal, but listen to a lot of styles of music. And I can talk about different types of music. Uh, I even know a few others who play metal and other music, you know, very complex instrumental music like I do. But at the time, it was really odd. And I just went with what felt right. You know, I, I just started really appreciating instrumental music, not for the sake of being technical, but just certain music spoke to me, even if it was completely different than the scene I was in. Yeah, it wasn't music I'd grown up excited about. I developed an appreciation for it. I saw no reason not to you know study jazz guitar take lessons with jazz musicians and get a jazz record collection you know while i was on tour with testament supporting groups like slayer <laughs> So again, yeah, it was a real oddball. Is it really that weird? Because here's the thing, the the thrash metal genre, I mean, you guys are practicing all kinds of tricky time signatures mm -hmm. uh, that is certainly not a 180 from jazz. So is it really as big of a leap as it seems from the outside looking in? No, it shouldn't be. I mean, I think at the time, you know, the way uh, music is sold and the way it's presented, you know, and it's very categorized, especially back then. Then, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, you had heavy metal magazines. They were very distinctly heavy metal. I remember uh, I used to get circus all the time. And I just remember the pictures were just awful. Like it was like no. some guy with a point and shoot and you could always see people's armpits and stuff. It was mm. like real grungy. Yeah, right. So you had circus you had metal edge you know in europe you had kerrang and it was an exciting culture but it just wasn't really accepted to be part of that and be part of anything else if you were in it you were in it <laughs> you're in it yeah. all the way so that's why in the early 90s as you mentioned yeah i took this very different turn and i actually sort of disappeared for a while Yeah. Which isn't really true. You went back to school, didn't you? I did. It took me a couple of years to realize that's what I wanted to do, to come to that decision. Did you talk with your parents about that? Because I know your parents, they both went to and graduated yeah. from Yale, right? Yeah, they're both retired academics. They graduated from Yale. They were on the faculty of UC Berkeley. My father was a, was a very distinguished law professor there. Yeah, they had these academic credentials and the thought of somebody doing art of any kind. I think was horrifying and yeah. music even worse and heavy metal, this music that they didn't even understand <laughs> even worse. But you know, by the nineties, uh, but that being said, there's an intellectual bent to all the songwriting that you do and all the aesthetic choices that you make. That's true. That's yeah. true. And I think that started to come out more. I think that side was a little repressed, but it started to come out in the mid nineties. I tried playing with a number of different projects And for some reason, nothing felt right. And I just, I really felt like I needed to go on sabbatical, to use an academic term, and just yeah. take a few years and get a whole new thing together, a whole new sides of my playing, fill in gaps, learn how to do things I didn't know how to do, write a music chart. Did you know to... how to read music before then? I'd always struggled with it. 
And I'm not going to sit here today and tell you I could get on stage at Carnegie Hall and sight read flawlessly. But I got to the point back then where I, you know, I had like survival reading skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was enough that I could make my way through a university music program and improve as I went along. That helped. I didn't start out with uh, sight read. I was terrified of it. I was always an ear player. But for the things I wanted to do, I realized it was very necessary to be able to read and, and to write and to be able to work with charts, whether my own music or somebody else's. So, yeah, I had all these realizations. And I realized, you know, just a lot of the musicians that I admired that were doing things that inspired me, they had those skills. So I thought, if nothing else, let me at least develop these skills. I would rather do that than uh, give up on the type of playing I wanted to do. Yeah, this was all in the 90s. My parents, they were more excited about that than they were and more appreciative than they'd ever been about music. Because at least, you know, if I'm going to school, there must be some respectability to it. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like strict academics, it made sense. And I did really well. I went to the new school and they have a great jazz program, a great university in New York. That was when I put my trio together, the Alex Skolnick Trio. I met a number of other musicians there. You know, they were never the status quo or they, they weren't the typical musicians. You know, they were all great players, but they were open-minded and they weren't judgmental of mm-hmm. me doing this crazy thing. A guy who's been in a well-known metal band, going back to school and getting a music degree, they didn't think that was so crazy. You started playing it at age nine, right? I think I was nine or I might have been ten. Did you get your own guitar or did somebody buy it for you? There was a cheap guitar floating around the house, I remember. And at some point, I got more of a classical guitar, but it was at a garage sale. It was really cheap. Like a nylon string classical? Yeah, really hard to play nylon string classical. And for a couple years, that was my main guitar. But, you know, looking back, I'm thinking maybe that wasn't a bad thing because when I finally got an electric guitar, there was a really cheap electric guitar. And I I have an older brother to thank for uh, finding this. I think this was also like a garage sale guitar. (laughs) Yeah. But suddenly it seemed so much easier. I mean, there was no comparison. It seemed easier to play. So I put all this work into playing on this nylon string guitar, but it was good training for eventually playing an electric guitar. And I would say my first real guitar guitar I got after I'd I'd worked in a grocery store for a few years, bagging groceries. I think this is probably like seventh or eighth grade. Mm -hmm. I wasn't legally old enough to operate the cash register. So uh, <laughs> this is right before Legacy then. Legacy came out in 87. You joined the band in 84. Is that right or no? I joined the band in late 84 or early 85. And so just to clarify, Legacy was the initial name of Testament. So Testament is lead vocalist Chuck Billy, rhythm guitarist Eric Peterson, Alex on shredding leads, bassist Steve DiGiorgio, and the drummer is Chris Dovas. Well, that's the new drummer. The current okay. drummer. The original drummer was Louis Clementi. The original bass player was Greg Christian. On the first album, it was Louis Clementi, Greg Christian, myself, Chuck Billy, and the founder of the band, the one who's always been there, Eric Peterson. Right. Eric put the band together in 83. I joined around early 85. I think I might have auditioned in late 84, but my first show wasn't until 85. The first album came out in 1987. Before we get to that, I'm curious about the 
first thing that struck me when finding out that Legacy was actually the name of a jazz group and that you had to change your name because of that, it almost feels like in reading about the Beatles, you know, before the Cavern Club, they were playing at a club called the Indra. They had like an Indian insignia outside of the place on, on the uh, tarp. And it was almost like a memory of the future, how they would become interested, especially George, obviously, in Indian music and sitar. Legacy, being a jazz group's name, is almost like a memory of the future of you swinging off and veering left. Yeah, I don't know if it was a jazz group, but I remember it was a hotel band. Oh, like a like a cocktail jazz a cocktail band. Yeah, Not yeah. even. I thought they were a cocktail R&B Motown cover band. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> which is why they were called Legacy. That's my understanding. I could right. be totally wrong. I for, This is just a rough recollection. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. My monthly income at the moment totals a whopping 760 bucks. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more episodes, and moving forward, you'll get up to three shows a week. There's the main show every Friday, Wednesday's brand new series, The Top 10, and Monday's wildcard episode, which could be anything from interview bonus material, our buried treasure show Rock Cousteau, our slag off show Queasy Listening, an exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. And now back to our expertly crafted program. One of the things I've been dying to know for the past couple weeks is, you know, I'm looking at this pretty lengthy list of influences that are more a collective group of influences Mm -hmm. that the band had. So what I'm curious about is in 84 to 87, are you trying to figure out how do I get all my jazz aspirations into the same songwriting groove as what my buddies are doing in Testament? Or are you not there yet? Well, I liked the music. You know, it was very new. To me, it was one of many things going on. Like, my main type of music at that point uh, was what you might call power metal Mm -hmm. or hard rock. Dio, for example. Sure. Ozzy. Yeah, really one guitar bands that sometimes had keyboards. Yeah, of course, Van Halen. Dio and Ozzy. Those are templates for me. I could see doing a band like that. It's heavy metal, but kind of virtuosic. Oh, I liked uh, Yngwie Malmsteen a lot, too. Sure. And Satriani is a major player for you as far as how your paths would intermingle later on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
so at the time yeah i'm studying with joe satriani i'm mostly focused on sort of dio ozzy ingve music but there's the scene going on with these super fast heavy bands i saw slayer play their first gig in the san francisco bay area i saw metallica on their first tour now they were based in the bay area but they were already starting to take off like a rocket ship but i did catch one of their shows and of course exodus was super popular they'd been started by kirk cam so there was always a big buzz on them. So I'm seeing all these bands that play really, really fast. This is Bay Area. Yeah, this is the Bay Area. And then one of the bands was uh, Legacy, which would later become Testament. Yeah, it was different than what I envisioned playing. I really saw, you know, kind of the more Ozzy Osbourne type thing in my in my future. But I, I, I started thinking, wow, if, you know, if one of these bands needed a guitar player, I wouldn't mind doing that kind of music. And I'll bet there's a way to sort of squeeze the uh, guitar stuff I like to do and the solos into that music. And almost like clockwork, I hear about Legacy <laughs> needing a guitar player. The original guitar player, uh, who was Eric's cousin, changed jobs and didn't think the band was going anywhere and just yeah, really wanted to focus on his job. So they had this opening and a mutual friend of ours recommended me. I, I came in. Yeah, there were concerns because I was so young, but I guess they heard me play and asked me to be in the band. So that's that was how it happened. And within a couple of years, I was doing the first record. And I was in 11th grade at the time when I saw my first Kiss concert and I just started playing. Yeah, I was like in the sixth grade. I think I got my first guitar in sort of the eighth or ninth grade, which was a Les Paul. You know, I saved up my grocery money from working at the grocery store. I guess it was... Uh, three years later, 11th grade, that this all happened and I found myself in Legacy. And then by 1987, the first record is coming out. You talk about in your book how you really had tremendously low self-esteem and mm -hmm. a lack of confidence. Obviously, you know, mastering an instrument like this, was that your way out? Were you able to leave that perspective behind, those feelings behind because of the guitar? Uh... Yeah, I think I think well the guitar became a tool for expression. There's yeah, you know, there's nothing like getting out pent up emotions on an instrument. So yeah, it was a really great way to be expressive, to be heard and feel seen for a change after years of just you know, feeling invisible. What are then the ghosts of your past? You know, obviously adolescence has its own nightmares that are unavoidable, wow. but was there something in addition to just puberty and the trials and tribulations of, of teenhood? Was there anything else that made growing up difficult for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I, I was just one of these kids. I never got the memo of how you're supposed to behave in school. I thought, yeah, everybody else seemed so calm, cool, and collected and confident, which they weren't, sure. knowing what I know now. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you think that. And, you know, it's just the insecurity of youth. But I think I, I had it more than most. Yeah, so it was just really difficult. I didn't know how to communicate well. I felt very awkward and out of place invisible i i, I kind of opted to be invisible and i wanted as little attention as possible and it's ironic that i found myself in this career that's just all about <laughs> having eyes focused on you yeah and now obviously i'm very, very comfortable with it but that's after you know many years of just feeling like this introverted misfit and then when i finally got this opportunity to wield an instrument on stage and front of people that are going crazy a mosh pit it just 
it felt right. You know? yeah. <laughs> it felt yeah. like that. Okay. I, you know, I didn't know how long I was going to play that music or where it would lead, but I just knew that this is what I am supposed to be doing right now. Yeah. And you know, with metal, there's certain genres of music where it's like, uh, you found a family, obviously back in the eighties, goth. I remember the goth kids. It was like, all right, if you like that music, you have friends. Same with metal. It was always the metal kids hung out together, typically with an Eddie t-shirt on. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> what was that like? That initial run of records came out from 87 to 92. You had five albums in five years. What was it like for you to do that so early in your life? I mean, you're recording those records from 18 to 23 years old. You're just a baby. Yeah, uh, very intimidating. Yeah, I'll never forget being in a studio for the first time and just not understanding anything about it. You know? <laughs> It just looked like a scene out of 2001, A Space Odyssey. So futuristic. And this is sort of the tail end of audio recording. It's pre-digital. Yeah, it's pre-computer. Yeah, the mixing board at the time was very modern. Like a 48-track mixing board. I've just never seen anything with so many knobs and faders. Yeah, just the different rooms, the control room, yeah, the vocal booth. And yeah, it was fascinating, but very, very intimidating. And then when it came time to do the music, I was just baffled by the process. Because, uh, yeah, of course, there's different ways of doing it. But the way we did those first albums, we would record the drums. The whole goal was to get a good drum take. And then you play on top of the drums and you, you play as well as you can. Which is typical, but maybe not during the 80s because of the emphasis on gated drum sounds and all that kind of bullshit during that Oh, time. yeah. And I was just so used to music as a listener. You have this image in your head of the band playing. And of course, at that point, this was the MTV era. So, you know, often the first time you hear a song is a video on MTV and you see the band playing and it just creates this illusion. Like, that's what's happening. The band is playing. They're playing that music. But for the most part, that's not (laughs) what's happening. (laughs) So I just remember being baffled by the process, intimidated by the equipment and the studio. Do you enjoy the process of building tracks, though? Or over time, has that never really wound up trumping the live experience for you? I've learned to enjoy it. I actually really enjoy it enjoy it now but that's after a lot of experience the first few albums i didn't enjoy at all because it was just it was it was intimidating it was like being on stage except instead of being on stage and the show is over and maybe people remember it a lot of people don't you're recording something that everybody's going to hear yeah, no pressure. It's just going to be there yeah. forever. And forever, you, forever. And, and your self-worth will be gauged in direct correlation. Yes, which it yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah. But at the time, you know, you, not everybody knows that going in. I've also learned, you know, not to equate self-worth to it, but that takes time. I can separate the art and the artist with anyone yeah. else but me. Yeah. I've always had a problem with that. I'm a filmmaker. I went to school to make films and I've written, produced and directed two features. And still to this day, I go into it with the best of intentions of it being a separate thing and experience to who I am. And I always fail. Yeah, it's it's so true. I mean, yeah, we're our own worst enemies. Totally. So often yeah. with, mm-hmm. with art. You know, we forget to enjoy the process. But that is part of the process, too, is learning to enjoy it and to let a lot of that baggage go. The terror of legacy in 1987, did it remain all the way through to 1992? I mean, I think it, it got a little better because, you know, once you've been through the boot camp of the studio you sort of know what to expect going in and it gets a little bit less intimidating each time it's kind of like live performance 
But still, it was a tough period for the band. You know, everybody was very young still, and the communication wasn't good. Yeah, I think by the last album of that initial period, 92, nobody was getting along, and that kind of made it even more difficult. During the ritual. Yeah, it's hard to do creative work when, yeah, everybody's sort of dreading everybody else for one reason or another. And, yeah, one person wants the song one way, the other wants it another way, and everybody's sort of playing politics with the producer to try to get them to <laughs> to side with them. And it, there was just a, a lot of that. You know, the last laugh comes with the fact that most great art is made under very uncomfortable conditions of tension. Yeah. Which is no fucking fun, yeah. but there you have it. I mean, it's true. That's true. My favorite Pink Floyd music, turns out, was made by guys that really don't get along very well. What is your favorite stuff by them? Mostly fan of The Wall. I mean, I would listen to that record yeah. all through junior high school. The first episodes we ever did were Pink Floyd 1, Pink Floyd 2. For me, I guess the movie came out, The Wall, around the time I, I was discovering the band, and they had hits, you know, with like another break in the wall, and the guitar was so good on that, and Comfortably Numb, and that's really what brought me in. I got into Dark Side of the Moon, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you know, stuff like that as well. The thing about him is he's got so much hate in his heart. Yes, that's true. The Wall is kind of based on that moment in the mm -hmm. Animals Tour when he spit on a teenage boy. Oh my God, what the hell? Yeah, he spit on a kid in the front row of one of the gigs they played for the Animals Tour. And then the wall became a psychological reckoning of how somebody could get to a place where they could spit on a teenage boy. So he pumped some art out of his hatred. Uh, that's kind wow. of what he's a strange cat not a lot of people have that grounding that inspirational grounding where it's a negative pejorative thing that drives them speaking of the thing that drives you so from 87 to 92 did you feel artistic shackles tightening where metal initially was liberating and then you had all these other influences was that a process over those five years or did it come on suddenly in 92 it was a process i mean i think it had started probably around the time of the second album you know a few things happened uh we'd been so busy touring and recording it was pretty straight through but i had a couple opportunities to sit in with bands and it was fun because there were some local bands that would jam classic stuff like hendrix and cream and, and I, I realized I, I really enjoyed jamming mm -hmm. the process of jamming was really really fun but after a, a little while i got tired of doing those same songs Hey Joe, over and over. <laughs> right, hey yeah. Joe, Little Wing, Crossroads. Uh, great stuff. But around the same time, I saw Miles Davis on TV. His band at the time, I forget who was in it, probably Mike Stern or John Schofield. And it just blew my mind. It kind of opened me up to his jazz stuff, but mm -hmm. it just showed what was possible with music. And then I just, I went on this rabbit hole, you know, discovering musicians who had worked with Miles Davis. We have John McLaughlin, Joe Zawinul, uh, Herbie Hanna. Hancock, Chick Corea, discovering all their projects, and then all of the musicians that had worked with them, and it just opened up so much. So basically, every year from that time period, this is probably 88 or 89, I was studying, and I was just learning and expanding as a player. So by 92, I knew I needed to do some other music. All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Rudy Fishman, the great Alex Skolnick, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. 
Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discograffiti.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the bone-crunching pleasures of metal is to dive headfirst into Jim Florentine from That Metal Show rating Black Sabbath in a massive five-hour interview split into four episodes. That's 64, 65, 67, and 68. Then there's my interview with No Age's Randy Randall. That's episode 88. As well as Randy rating the Jesus Lizards catalog in a two parter that's 70 and 71 and finally our legendary van halen episode episode number nine Join us during the upcoming week as we descend down, down, down on Discograffiti's week-long Alex Skolnick deep dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings a heapin' helpin' of the wildcard episode digressions I aggressively court and then serve up piping hot for our Patreons. This Monday, you can finally trust that day because we're coming at you with Alex Skolnick's bonus shredding, which is rife to the gills with hot licks and such. And then there's this Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discograffiti's The Top Ten. This week's list features the indomitable Joe Kennedy and focuses on our top ten metal LPs for the metal averse. I will say that Joe is a recovering metalhead and this one's going to be a doozy. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the thematically related deep dive. Our Patreon's been up and running for over a year now. And with two episodes a week coming at you, there are now over 100 Patreon episodes available to you. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, December 1st, we're kicking in the winter with an ice-cold punch in the face with part two of our exclusive interview with Testament's lead guitarist, Alex Skolnick. And let's be clear, part two's the better part. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography.